Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And man, do we have a blockbuster for you. On this episode, it's the first of two. Um, and it's, uh, I think, important for every American voter. Whether you love President Trump or not, this is a seminal episode, especially given how President Trump has promoted himself as an entrepreneur. All of us have had the same question since he started to run, which is, what kind of a business person is he really? So now we get to go deep into his business with the Forbes reporter who in all likelihood knows more about President's, uh, President Trump's business than anyone outside the Trump organization. His name is Dan Alexander, and he's the journalist at Forbes who covers the president. And he's got a new, deeply researched book out called White House Inc., How Donald Trump Turned the Presidency into a business. And there are many stunning revelations in here. Dan answers the question, is the president actually a billionaire? Um, he examines for us how well or how poorly the, the president's businesses are currently doing, where he makes money and loses money, uh, how much the president would have made if he had sold all of his assets and put them in a blind trust and whether or not that would have been a better move for him. Also, you're going to discover what happened politically after the government of Qatar rented office space in a building in San Francisco that the president owns 30 percent of. We also get into uh, the potential conflicts of interest the president faces by owning uh, such a uh, complex business organization like the one he owns. We get Dan's take on the reporting that the New York Times recently did on Mr. Trump's taxes. And the interesting thing about Dan, when the news about his taxes came out, Dan was really the only guy in the world outside the Trump organization who had a complete picture of the president's business his current assets and net worth uh, and liabilities, and then connected the dots with uh, the taxes. And so he's got some incredible insights. He also wrote a very important piece about that, which is in the show notes at Lockhead.com. He also tells us about his conversation with Eric Trump and uh, what Eric Trump told Dan about his father's involvement in the business during the presidency. And Eric also revealed to Dan what the Trump organization's real business strategy is and a whole lot more. There's a ton in this conversation. It's riveting and I know you'll love it. Now, I also want you to know that uh, around here we strive to be apolitical. First, because there are a million other political news shows and podcasts and things you can go get that stuff from. And so we try to keep that out of this, uh, out of follow your different as much as possible. Second, I love people that are on the far right and I love people that are on the far left and somewhere in the middle. And I know extraordinarily legendary, caring, good people who are deep supporters of the president. And uh, the same is true for people who don't support the president. Now, this also makes it living in the United States also makes it a little bit difficult for me. You see, I am not affiliated with either party. I'm neither a Democrat or a Republican. And I believe things about the Republicans that I think um, things they do and things they stand for that I believe uh, vehemently. And the same is true of Democrats. And then there's some things about Democrats and some things about Republicans that scare the living shit out of me. So in the United States of America, politically, 
Uh, I don't really have a good place to stand. And there are very few people <laughs> that I can have a conversation with without pissing off because I try best I can to take a balanced point of view. So what you're about to hear in this episode is uh, not a partisan discussion, but a discussion based on real investigative journalism. And, uh, you know, Dan and I trying to unpack that best as possible. All right. We're sponsored by my good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Visit NetSuite.com slash different today. That's NetSuite.com slash different today to build the platform for your business. And in the crisis, people turn to data and Splunk is the leader in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com slash D to E. Now, hey ho, let's go. Dan. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you. Uh, you have shined a light in a place where a lot of people have tried to shine a light and what, weren't able to get there. And so I really appreciate your new book. And uh, I appreciate your analysis of the president's uh, tax returns that you published uh, very quickly after they came out with the big New York Times story. I, the fact that you jumped right on it and sort of tried to connect dots for people. I think you did a wonderful job. Yeah, it was fortuitous timing, you know, with me having finally a little bit of time after the book and uh, and suddenly everybody's interested in Trump's business. So it worked out really well. Yeah, I, I can I can imagine you've been <laughs> you've been busy. Yeah, sure. have. It was a sprint. So let's start with the question I think a lot of people have had for a long time, which is, is President Trump really a billionaire? <laughs> he really is a billionaire, believe it or not. And, you know, this is an exercise that you know, at Forbes, part of my responsibility is twice a year I go through and count up all of his assets and all of his debt. And I think that people would be surprised by how much information we actually have about the value of his assets and the level of his debt. And, you know, if you go through it, it's just a simple math equation. You know, you add up the assets and you subtract the debt and you get to the net worth. Of course, figuring out the value of the assets is more complicated. You can't just, you know, go look at a document and it'll tell you, nor, of course, can you just ask the president because he'll tell you a number that's way, way higher than the reality. But we do have a lot of underlying information that helps us figure this out. So, for instance, uh, you know, Trump holds a lot of debt with lenders who uh, have to disclose how much net operating income various properties of his produce. Uh, he also holds his two most valuable properties in partnership with a publicly traded company that has to disclose a lot of information, including net operating income on those properties. And to value real estate assets, you know, traditional commercial real estate assets, you need to know the net operating income, you need to know the square footage, obviously the location of the building, and then you need to know sort of what the market is trading for at any given time. You know, what are the multiples on those profits that would allow you to arrive at a valuation. That's how someone who would buy a building would figure out how much it's worth. And so what we do is we collect all of this financial information, you know, from SEC documents, from the partners, from various sources, and then we call up a bunch of experts in these industries. So, you know, every six months I call up more than 75 people uh, in total. You know, I've spoken to probably 150 people 
in who are experts in the various industries in which Trump plays. And they tell us about, you know, what are the multiples that things are trading for. And if you talk to enough of them, you know, everyone's got a slightly different opinion, but if you talk to enough of them, then you get to, you know, sort of a rough average, you know, what would the market actually bear? You know, for instance, for New York City real estate properties, you know, we talked to nine, uh, you know, people who are constantly buying and selling New York City office buildings. And so they can tell us about the multiples, then we have the financials, and then you plug it into, you know, a formula that tells you what the value is of a particular asset. And you go through, you know, he's got almost 30 different assets or sort of classes of assets that we value. And you add all of those up and you get to $3.66 billion. And then you add up all of his debt and you get to $1.1 billion. And then it's just simple subtraction, 3.66 minus 1.1. Right now we've got him at $2.5 billion. Yep. Good work. Hard work to do, though. I mean, I realize some of these uh, documents are public, but at at the same time, um, my understanding, and I'm no financial analyst, but I do have a 34-year business career, that... A, it appears the president has tried to keep this stuff as private as possible. Um, but B, uh, regardless of what he's done or hasn't done, to your point, it, it can be challenging to uh, value these things. You know, in the case of, say, 555 California, you have to do a lot of work to understand what the likely rents in that place are, I would imagine. Yes? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the documents are public, but they're kind of, um, <laughs> they're kind of hidden in public, if you will. So for instance, you know, on a lot of his commercial real estate properties, you know, th- the actual documents that show what the profitability is do not list each property. They list a code for each property. And so you have to go figure out what the code is. And once you have the code, then you can determine what the profitability of that property is. But then you also have to determine the ownership. And the ownership, you know, you have to look through, you know, Trump's financial disclosure report and other property records to piece together how much of this building he actually owns. So the information is there. Um, but it's not as simple as, oh, you pull up a document and it says Trump Towers net operating income is $13 million. It's it's a little bit trickier than that. But fortunately if you, you know, work on it, uh, for as many hours, for as many years as I have and as Forbes has, uh, you get a little bit better each time and you know where to find stuff. And anytime that anybody reports any ounce of new information that might change the valuation, uh, you know, our ears perk up right away and we go figure out that and then go figure out, is there, are there any other parallel things that we might be able to discover about other properties based on where this report seems to have found this new information. So ultimately, we get a pretty complete picture. Yes. And remind me, I I know it's many decades, but how long has Forbes been doing the 400 list of the wealthiest people? Yeah. So the first one, I believe it was 1982. And uh, Donald Trump was on the first one. (laughs) Um, He should not have been, but he was. He snuck his way onto that list. His father deserved to be on it. He did not. And uh, he sort of conned his way onto the list. And then ultimately, uh, <laughs> deservingly got on it. <laughs> <laughs> now, just by way of background, years ago, I was the head of marketing for a software company called Mercury. And uh, we ended up becoming one of the top companies in the Forbes uh, annual sort of fastest growing 
I forget that, you know, fastest growing entrepreneurial company type list. I forget the exact name. And as a result, we were privileged enough um, that Forbes decided to put our CEO at the time, Amnon Landon, on the cover. Mm-hmm. He was one of the co-founders of the company and so forth. Anyway, so as a result, I got to work with uh, Forbes in a very unique way. And uh, the gentleman who wrote the article was Bruce Upin, if you remember Bruce. Of course, no well. And so I uh, got to know Bruce through the process because it was when you're going to be on the cover of Forbes, I don't have to tell you, there's a tremendous amount of work you folks do and you stick a pretty big thermometer in the company to make sure we're not full of shit and so forth and so on. Anyway, in all of that time, I remember Bruce telling me this story about um, Donald Trump and he said, and I'm, I want to triangulate this with you, <laughs> that Trump was the only billionaire on the 400 list that would call and demand to be higher on the list when in point of fact, most of the uh, uh, people on the list tried to figure out a way to get off the list and out of the press. <laughs> so I remember that story very well. Uh, w- is that still true, you know, heading into his presidency? It's, it's directionally true. There have been a few other examples, uh, including, you know, Wilbur Ross actually uh, lied for years to get onto the list as well. Uh, the Secretary of Commerce, Trump's Secretary of Commerce. So there are a couple of <laughs> other examples. Uh, but, it, you know, since we started doing the list in the early 80s, you know, it changes every year. People rotate on, people rotate off, you know, people die. Mark Zuckerberg's born, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Shit and, happens, yeah. Yeah, in total, there have been about 1,600 people who have been on the list at one point or another. And we said this before Trump was a politician. Uh, there's no one who cares as much about where he ranks on that list as Donald Trump. You get some phone calls. Oh, yeah. And, you know, since he's been president, in fact, uh, you know, Trump himself hasn't, uh, you know, he's busy doing other things. So he's not, you know, ringing me up and arguing over the value of Trump Tower. Um, but the Trump organization, you know, has continued uh, to do some of the same things. You know, just... A couple of cycles ago, you know, they were claiming to me that Mar-a-Lago was worth uh, at least $500 million. And, you know, Mar-a-Lago is a nice property, uh, but, you know, it's, it's basically a mansion. There's no mansion that's ever sold for anything like $500 million. We've got the place valued at $180 million, which is a pricey piece of real estate, well, but it's a long way from And what would a nice, by comparison, you know, St. Regis or Four Seasons in a wonderful location, you know, in a a comparable size be worth? Well, it depends. You know, those sorts of properties, you know, those are like hotels. And so if you have, you know, those are valued based on your net operating income and also based on the number of hotel rooms that you have. But Mar-a-Lago is not a hotel. You know, Mar-a-Lago is a mansion that they turned into a club. Um, And if you value it on as a club, you know, on its profitability, you know, the thing is worth like 50 million. I mean, it's way, way less. Uh, but if you value it as a mansion, you know, sort of a one of a kind property, which is more the way that we look at it, um, then, you know, you could get to, you know, there are really, really, really nice properties that have sold for $150 million, um, you know, that have asked, you know, $200 million. Uh, I think that there was a penthouse in New York that sold for $220 million a couple of years ago. Um, but that's the ceiling. And so we've got it at 180, <laughs> which is a very, so probably very not worth half a bill ski. Yeah, no, it's, it's a nice valuation to put on it. It's, it's not coming close to half a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, Dan, I also have to sort of a, uh, make a comment and then ask you a, a personal question. And you can feel free to kick me under the table if you like. But I think it, it, it matters to people. You know, when Mary Trump's book came out, I think a lot of people found it fascinating, um, as did I. And she seems to me like a very interesting and, and very credible person. But and there's a big but here. She's also, you know, been cut out of the will and has an axe to grind. Sure. And so she's clearly got an agenda that is more than just, if I could say, reporting the news, so to speak. And, and so while her book is interesting and her comments are interesting and so forth, I think there's a lot of people who sort of brush aside much of what she says because she clearly has an axe to grind. Now, whether she's rightful in having that axe to grind or not, you know, that's that's for people to decide on their own. Sure. All, all that is to say, when I saw your book come out, I thought, now, isn't this interesting? Because Forbes has a generational history of of uh, celebrating billionaires, of putting more billionaires on the cover than maybe any other Western magazine. And, uh, you know, I've met Steve Forbes and I've been on the boat and, I've, you know, I've been around Forbes for a long time. And uh, Forbes, maybe more than any other magazine, certainly in America, you know, celebrates the entrepreneur, celebrates the billionaire, celebrates capitalism. And so, you know, if you had been a reporter, I was telling my wife this uh, earlier, I said, you know, if Dan worked at Huffington Post, I, I don't think I'd want to have this conversation with him because you know, it, it would feel like a person with an agenda. So all that is to say, A, Forbes has not had a historical uh, agenda against billionaires. As a matter of fact, the opposite. Mm -hmm. And yet some people have criticized your book for being partisan, that you have some kind of an agenda against the president, that your politics don't line up with his, things along those lines. So I'm, I'm just curious, sort of uh, what, if anything, you can share with me about sort of where you're coming from in writing this book. Yeah, no, it's a totally fair question. I mean, I think... You know, first to talk about, you know, Forbes, and then I'll talk about myself a little bit. You know, Forbes, um, you know, absolutely champions entrepreneurs and believes that, you know, capitalism is a force for good in the world uh, and does not believe that making money is a sin. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we look at business and look at our role in business like, you know, a theater critic looks at the theater. and. Um, you know, when somebody puts on a great play, you celebrate it, you know, when they do something innovative and cool and fun, you know, you tell everybody how great it is. And when somebody puts on a bad play, uh, then you tell them how bad it is. And, uh, so that's sort of the way that we think about reporting on business. You know, we celebrate the, all of the greatness uh, but you know, we're ready to tell people when they've seen a bad play. <laughs> um, and at the core of that, and in a way that it, you know, uh, crosses with my own personal philosophy too, is, you know, I don't like reporting on, uh, policy and on, you know, politics in the traditional sense, but I do really like numbers. And, uh, I find that numbers are a way of cutting through people's previous expectations so and you know you see that in the reporting in this book and in my reporting elsewhere um you know i think at the start of the presidency a lot of people just sort of assumed oh trump came in you know he's the president 
He's got this business. He's using the presidency and getting rich off of it. And But when you look at the numbers, it tells you a different story. It tells you a story of a guy who, yeah, is trying to make money on the presidency, but he's failing at that. His net worth hmm. is decreasing. And when you start with the numbers, it gives you an anchor for your reporting. Uh, and it lets you then tell a story that might surprise you yourself and also is likely to surprise readers. And that it means that everyone's learning something. And so the challenge of this book and the fun of this book was it starts as one big math problem. You know, you mm. dig into each type of business and you figure out, you know, where is the money coming from? Is he making money here? Is he losing money here? And then you begin with the numbers and then you go explore the scenes and you turn a math problem, you know, into a movie. You know, you're wandering around in the DC hotel, you know, you're exploring in you know, these anonymous skyscrapers that are difficult to get inside. You know, you're talking to people who work at his businesses. And that is, you know, allows you then at the end to step back and say, I didn't come at this, you know, with any sort of preconceived thing other than I trust what the numbers tell me. You know, and if you trust what the numbers tell you, there sometimes it's going to look good for the president. Sometimes it's going to look bad for the president. There are a lot of people who would say, oh, you know, the fact that he's lost money on the president since he's been president means that, you know, maybe Trump will use that to help him. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care right. if it helps or hurts or whatever. I'm just trying to look at what the numbers are and tell a business story that happens to be about a political figure. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. That, that was my sense in consuming your work, but I appreciate it. Also, just one little thing to clarify with you. Uh, it, it has been reported that the president donates his salary as president back to the Treasury. Mm -hmm. uh, best you can tell that's true. Yeah, he donates it to various, uh, you know, departments or whatever each uh, year. You know, it's four hundred thousand um, dollars. You know, in his first three years as president, his business has generated one point nine billion dollars of revenue. Yeah. So it's no sweat off his back. No. But I think I think still, in fairness to the president, um, um, an honorable gesture. Yeah. nonetheless. And he doesn't have to do it. And he, and he is doing yeah. it. Yeah. So um, take me inside the Trump organization, Dan. You <laughs> probably know more about at least the economics of the Trump organization than maybe anyone else. So um, uh, uh, <laughs> unpack it, pop the hood, undo the onion. Tell me all about it. Well, it's a troubled business. Uh, you know, they were in a decent spot. If you rewind back to call it, you know, 2012 or something like that, you know, they are expanding their traditional golf clubs and, uh, you know, they've gotten out of Atlantic City and their commercial real estate holdings are doing fairly well and the apprentice is still bringing in money. You know, it was, it was a decent business at that point. Um, Around 2012, they make a series of really uh, bad business moves. And those start with transforming what at the time had been sort of a, a hodgepodge of small golf clubs where, you know, they had members and those businesses were doing, you know, some of them were doing well, some of them were doing poorly. And they make this very large bet on golf resorts. 
and they do three properties in Europe. Uh, you know, one in Aberdeen, Scotland, another one at Turnberry, another one in Doombeck, Ireland. And they also purchase Trump National Doral in Florida. And those bets are all uh, proved to be really, really terrible investments. Uh, you know, he buys Trump Dur- National Doral in Florida for $150 million. He then invests an additional $213 million into that property. So now you're at $363 million. We value that business right now at $153 million. So that's $210 million down the drain. Uh, And just so that I understand, because I don't know golf club valuations and economics, you know, how would that compare with some of the, you know, storied golf clubs in their value um, around the United States or Europe or frankly, anywhere else in the world? It's, It's a really, really valuable golf property. Uh, it's just unprecedented for somebody to pour $363 million into a golf anything. That's just a tremendous okay. amount of money. And, you know, Doral could have been fine. Um, you know, if it, if Trump were content to run it as, you know, a four star golf resort that was, um, you know, that made good money. But instead, you know, Trump wants everything to be the best. And sometimes that gets the best of him. You know, he puts too much money into properties and he has a lot of trouble getting that money out, either through profits that those properties throw off uh, or through future sales. And, you know, if you look in Europe, it's the same thing. You know, his most famous property is Turnberry. You know, he buys that thing for about $65 million, throws, you know, tens of millions of dollars into it year after year after year, and it never turns an annual profit. you know, and it's worth a fraction of what he's put into it. Same thing in Aberdeen, same thing at Doombeck. So those golf resorts have been a huge problem for him. And we're a huge problem for him heading into the presidency. Then he's got the Trump International Hotel, which again, sort of a similar idea. You know, he does this deal with the US government and commits to invest $200 million into this hotel. He gets an $170 million mortgage from Deutsche Bank puts in at least $30 million of his own, and fixes up this building. It's real money. He, the building is beautiful. It's spectacular. If you ever walk in there, it's stunning. It's a wonderful care. restoration, is it not? It's I haven't been to it, but incredible. I've seen the photos. I don't care if you like Trump or hate Trump or whatever. Look at the building on its own. It's a beautiful building. The problem is, is that it doesn't make much money. Uh, hmm. And he's got a big mortgage against it. You know, Trump, if you look at, just the first four months of 2017, which we have financials for those first four months, and they coincide with, you know, the time of Trump's initial inauguration. So the business is doing really, really well, or you'd expect it to be doing really, really well. You know, his profit margins at that point are about 10%. And his revenue each year is about $52 million. So that suggests that he's, you know, making these are operating profits, his operating profits are about $5 million a year in a really, really good scenario, if he were to keep up, you know, the performance that he had at the start of 2017. If you take an $170 million mortgage, even if your interest rate isn't that much, let's say that you're paying, you know, three and a half percent interest or something like that. Boom, right there, that's enough to wipe away all of those operating profits. So it's very clear that he's losing Just servicing the interest. Yeah, just servicing the interest. That's not getting to depreciation, you know, or any fancy accounting tricks or anything like that yet. So he's losing money on this property that so many people have assumed, you know, was a real moneymaker. And so you take that hotel, you combine it with these European investments, uh, 
And then you take, you know, his brand. A lot of people have said, you know, that he wanted to go into politics to increase the value of his brand. Well, he certainly made the brand bigger, um, but the value of it has plummeted. And you don't have to look very hard to figure it out. I mean, a lot of that branding income that he was bringing in was from The Apprentice. Well, there's a federal law that you can't have uh, one candidate getting an inordinate amount of coverage from news pro or excuse me from TV programs that are not news. So right there, he's not allowed to be on The Apprentice anymore. Right when he becomes a presidential candidate, so boom, that income. I didn't know that was a law. Yeah, yeah. So, so right he's, there, he would not have, had he wanted to continue in The Apprentice or or some other let's just call it entertainment based programming. He would he's not allowed to not do allowed that. Not allowed to do it. So right there, that wipes out a huge chunk of money. Second thing- How much was he making roughly a year on The Apprentice? Well, it varied year by year. And in the later years, it was you know smaller amounts of money. But if you drag it out you know, overall through the whole thing, you know he was making somewhere between about five to $10 million on average from The Apprentice. But then you've got to remember that The Apprentice has its other effects. So people want to put his name on stuff because he's Trump, because he's famous, because they see him on The Apprentice all the time. Well- on day one of his presidential campaign, you know, he makes the famous comment where he says, you know, that, uh, you know, Mexicans are coming into the country and they're rapists and some of them, I assume, are good people. Well, that comment is so outrageous to so many people that a lot of his corporate partners immediately are like, we don't want to come anywhere close to this guy. And did, so he, did NBC drop him when he said that, Dan? Yeah, not long after. NBC drops him. Uh, which at that point, they had already lost the apprentice. So what they were dropping him for was the Miss Universe contest, uh, which was um. part of his business at that at that point. And, you know, several of his other product partners get out too. Macy stops selling his shirts. Uh, you know, his deal selling mattresses starts to diminish. Uh, you know, he basically, his product licensing business begins to evaporate. All because of the the Mexicans or rapists comments. Exactly. And then once he becomes president, uh, you know, he makes this commitment, which he didn't uphold. But the commitment was that he wasn't going to do any foreign business deals. He ends up doing foreign business deals, but he does stop doing sort of the new massive buildings with my name slapped on the front in far flung countries. And that was really the only prospect that that the hotel licensing business had for growth. It wasn't going to Mm. expand to more U.S. cities. In fact, they tried to expand in the U.S. and came out with a big announcement saying that they were doing, you know, all these new properties and zero of them came to fruition. So right there, all of his, the apprentice, the product licensing, the hotel licensing, building licensing, it all dissipates. It becomes nothing. So what are you left with? Well, you're left with a commercial portfolio that is doing really quite well. It throws off real money, is worth, you know, a significant amount of money. You know, most of his fortune is tied up in his commercial real estate portfolio. And then, and in those got, cases, he's not, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Dan, but yeah, let's go. he's not, the Trump organization is not necessarily running the organization. So in the case of like a 555 California, they have, if I remember your reporting right, about a 30% equity stake. Yeah, that's right. Both in 555 California and in 1290 Avenue of the Americas, they have 30%. Vornado, which is publicly traded, very professionally run, has the other 70% and therefore is managing those two buildings. And those and two buildings. His name is not really on well. either building. And his name's not on either building. 
Now, there are some buildings where his name is on them, and uh, they're still doing okay. So 40 Wall Street, which is also called the Trump Building, and Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue. Uh, those buildings, you know, Trump Tower brings in about $13 million of net operating income per year. And 40 Wall Street brings in about $18 million of net operating income per year. Those are significant holdings. Um, so the commercial real estate business is doing fine. But then he's got this troubled, you know, hotel slash golf business that's really not in great shape. And so the question is, you know, then once he becomes president, how does that ripple through? Well, it makes the hotel and resort business worse because you lose 50% of your potential customers. You know, sure, you pick up some events and that sort of thing, but you lose a lot more than you gain because of the policy. So the number of people who might want to, um, you know, curry favor with the president of the United States by uh, buying a membership uh, or, or, or some other, you know, renting a spot or whatever it is, whatever the business activity is, um, doesn't compensate for the fact that 50% plus or minus of the people leave because they're not for him politically. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so you've got both an ethics problem and a business problem simultaneously. And then, you know, you look at the commercial real estate portfolio, that weathers the storm a lot better because, first of all, a lot of those customers are on, you know, 10, 15-year leases. So they can't just immediately be like, all right, I'm out. Um, but there is some political effect. Uh, you know, Nike, and it's not saying exactly why it left, but was one of its highest paying tenants. And it abandons 6 East 57th Street, which is right around the corner from Trump Tower which is a really important holding that Trump has. And so now, you know, he's got sort of a temporary tenant in there in Tiffany's, but they're going to have to figure that out. It's a big retail space and they're not going to have a tenant here pretty soon. They need to find somebody who's willing to pay them, uh, you know, in excess of $10 million a year to rent space from the president of the United States. Um, and do you think, Dan, that was at least in part politically motivated by Nike? Yeah, I, I think that it was probably a couple of things. Uh, I do think that politics probably played a role in one of the final displays that they had there when they were in that building. I walked through it and it was um, right around the time that Nike was sort of uh, duking it out with Trump and with Colin Kaepernick as one of their uh, athletes who was kneeling for the national anthem and Trump was weighing in. And right there in the opening uh, entrance of this Trump building that where Nike is the tenant is a huge display of Colin Kaepernick and Megan Rapino and you know all of these Nike athletes you know kneeling for the flag and standing up for social justice issues and there was nothing um, uh, if you didn't know who owned the building and you didn't know the backstory there, you might have just walked right by it. But knowing all of that and knowing that Nike was about to vacate the building, uh, it, it seemed to be quite a statement. Um, hard to believe it was a coincidence. Hard to believe it was a coincidence. So And so so in terms of those kinds of businesses where people could extricate themselves, they they have been if they were of a different political stripe. In some cases. Now, in other cases, for instance, in 1290 Avenue of the Americas and 555 California Street, which are the most valuable buildings in his entire portfolio, uh, neither of which have his name on them. You know, some of the tenants in there don't even realize that they're paying Donald Trump rent. Um, but they are <laughs> a lot of rent. In fact, about 50% of the rent coming into his entire portfolio flows through those two buildings. Um, and in those cases, because there's not 
a Trump brand on the building, uh, it would seem less likely that people would abandon the buildings just to get out of sort of the Trump sphere because there's less repercussions for it. There's less, you know, potential customers, clients, whatever, aren't even going to know. They're just going to a random no-name building in Midtown Manhattan. Well, and in terms of 555 California, I've been in that building more times than I can count. There are huge tenants in there that are respected corporations, be it Microsoft, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, KKR, and, and many others. Uh, it's a wonderful building, by the way, when you're in one of the conference rooms there and you're working on something. Um, it's, it's a beautiful place to be. There's no doubt about it. But until your book came out, uh, I had I certainly had no idea that he owned 30 percent of the building. Mm -hmm. And and I had no idea that the uh, Qatari government uh, was renting places in a spot in there. And, and somehow um, his tone about them changed shortly thereafter. Th these were dots that certainly I hadn't connected. And I don't know that anybody in the world had connected. And so maybe sh shed some light on some of that stuff, if you if you wouldn't mind, Dan. Yeah. So, you know, one of the issues with Trump's business is that there are so many different entry points where people can pay him. And it's not Did you say over 100 different entities. Yeah, more than 150 tenants. Um, and then, you know, if you go to his clubs, I mean, that's thousands of additional people. So there are, you know, literally thousands of entry points for people to pay him. They can buy condos from him. They can stop at his hotels. They can join his clubs. They can rent space in his buildings. And a lot of this stuff can go on totally undetected. So, you know, one of the challenges is that Trump, because of loopholes and federal disclosure laws, does not have to say who his tenants are in his buildings. And so for the book, you know, I wanted to figure out who's actually paying him rent and how much are they paying him? So good question, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, the hardest place to figure it out were his two most important buildings, 555 California street and 1290 Avenue in the Americas because they have security at the bottom. And because these are big bland office buildings. So it's not like Goldman Sachs is putting, you know, Goldman Sachs on that side of the building. You can't walk up to the building and just see, you know, who, is in there. It's just that they have space on, you know, whatever floor. So, uh, I'm digging around and fortunately I came upon sort of the, the document that I was praying existed and in fact did. And it was a document displaying all of the tenants in those two buildings, how much square footage they had and when those leases expired. And on the 43rd floor of 555 California street, this document listed Qatar Investment Authority. And, you know, I was shocked when I saw it because I had never heard that the Qataris were renting space in a Trump building. And as I started to dig around more, it got stranger. You know, the Qatar Investment Authority didn't list an office in that building on their website. Um, and so I booked a ticket to California and went out there. And there's a directory at the bottom of the building with the tenants, but uh, Qatar Investment Authority wasn't listed in the directory. Um, and fortunately, there was a co-working space that was on the 49th floor. And so that shared an elevator bank with the Qatar Investment Authority on the 43rd floor, if they were actually there. And uh, so I booked a co-working space, which allowed me to get past the security and up into the elevators. And so I went up to the co-working space, dropped my bags, took the elevator back down to the 43rd floor. When I got off the elevator, you know, I took a left, left turn and 
there it was. It was, you know, big, beautiful, uh, glass walled office space. And I go up to the doors and, you know, it says on the wall behind the, uh, behind the reception desk, it says Qatar investment authority. And, you know, it was this document coming to life. And, um, but the strangest thing is, as I'm looking around, you know, the place is beautiful. I mean, they've got like this nice white lattice work that's in the entryway and it's got all these really nice furniture and um the floors are spotless uh but there's nobody in there there's you know no one in any of the conference rooms inside there's no one at the you don't see anybody no one Um, there's no receptionist no receptionist does the front door open nope it's locked um so i knock on it and uh you know knocked really hard uh no one answered (laughs) No one stirred inside. Uh, so I walked down the hall. There was kind of a, you know, a couple other entrances. And so I checked out those, peered through the glass, nothing. Um, and then the, the real kicker was that on the uh, top of the reception desk, there was a plant. It looked like an orchid or something like that. And it was in a pot. And it was um, the color of sand. It looked like it had been dead for months. And nobody had ever mm. watered the thing. And nobody loved it, Dan. Yeah, nobody had. <laughs> so, you know, you start sort of connecting the dots and you, okay, here's a, the Qatar Investment Authority, which is a sovereign wealth fund from Qatar that operates as an arm of the Qatari government. It is renting space, Donald Trump's most valuable building. No one knows that they're renting space because Trump doesn't have to disclose it and because it doesn't appear anywhere. It's not on the website, it's not on the directory downstairs, and no one's reported on it. And then there doesn't seem to be any clear business purpose for this rental. And you, I went back the next day, knocked again at a different time to see if anybody was there then. Nope. Uh, called you know up somebody who worked in the building and was in touch with him and you know asking him you know if he ever saw anyone. He said other than when they were in construction, he never once saw anyone go in or out of that office. Um, mm-hmm. So then you start looking at U.S. policy and seeing, all right, well, what's, you know, is there any connection here? And what you find is that, you know, Trump's first overseas trip after he takes office is he goes to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and there's a business connection there, too. The Saudis had pumped about $270,000 into the Trump International Hotel sometime between the end of 2016 and the start of 2017. And so he makes his first overseas trip to Saudi Arabia. And he's speaking with the leaders there and the Saudis are U.S. allies, so is Qatar, but those two countries are fighting between each other. And the Saudis are accusing the Qataris of funding terrorists, which the Qataris are denying. And so the Saudi leaders tell Trump about this and he comes back to the United States and, uh, you know, echoes their line and says that the Qataris are funding terrorists. And, you know, which is a big thing to say about a U.S. ally. And, um, but Trump sort of explains it as, you know, I'm the guy who came in here to shake things up and I'm going to tell it like it is. And, uh, you know, he, they are funding terrorists. And so I'm going to say that they're funding terrorists. And then in sometime after February, 2018 is when the Qataris get this office space in Trump's building. And after that, uh, you know, Trump invites the Qatari leader to Washington and they're sitting in the Oval Office, and he says to him the exact opposite thing as he had been saying before. He commends the Qatari emir for fighting against terrorism funding. So 
his policy has done a total 180. And it's not clear why that's happened. Now, there are other possible explanations than just that they were renting space. You know, the Qataris were lobbying a lot in the United States at the time. Maybe Trump just got a better idea of what was going on in the region. You know, you can explain this in other ways. But with no other president, would we wonder whether a rental agreement was part of that calculation, whether that was part of what what changed his mind? And, you know, he ends up inviting the Qataris back to Washington. Uh, this time, the emir comes back. This is in 2019. The emir comes back, and he brings along a huge delegation, including several members of the board of directors of the Qatar Investment Authority and the CEO of the Qatar Investment Authority. Trump invites American leaders to come to dinner with them, including Stephen Roth, who's the CEO of Vernado, his partner in that building. And so they all have this big dinner together in the Treasury Department in a room called the Cash Room, which is where the United States used to store its gold, silver, and its paper currency. So they sit so down. Was it named after Johnny Cash? <laughs> it was not. <laughs> and, uh, so they sit down in this room, you know, it's this room full of, you know, Qataris and American billionaires and uh, sort of titans of industry. And Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, stands up and he says, you know, this room is such a fitting tribute to the economic and security partnership between our two nations. And Trump stands up and gives his own toast and he's addressing the Qataris and he says uh, to them, you know, I just want you to know that uh, your investments in the United States are something that we really, really appreciate. So you add together that timeline. Really appreciate, Dan? Is that what you said? Yeah, really appreciate. Yeah. So you add together that timeline and that change in foreign policy with this business deal. And it's hard to get inside somebody's head and know exactly what's motivating Trump and why he's making decisions that he's making. But it's a nightmarish timeline. Uh, it's exactly the sort of thing, you know, that everyone starting with the founding fathers feared would happen, you know, that there would be foreign governments who could get financial influence with U.S. leaders and that might impact policy. And although we don't know for sure what caused Trump's change of heart, uh, we know that the timeline doesn't look good. Now, I'm curious, and if you don't know, you know, that's fine. Um, when, for example, Bloomberg became mayor of New York, my understanding is that he put his assets, including his his major business, the information business on Wall Street, um, in a quote unquote blind trust and had professional quote unquote managers running those things. And theoretically, he, for the, his time in office, stayed away from his businesses, had professionals doing whatever they were doing, was not made aware of decisions they were making to buy and sell things or create new products or do whatever it was they were doing. And he just focused on being mayor. And th- theoretically, when he was not mayor, he came back to his enterprise. Um, that's what we've been told when billionaires have held you know, high positions of power before. A, is that true <laughs> to the best of your knowledge? And B, um, you know, what's it like in terms of Trump's involvement with his business or not uh, as he's president? So first starting with Bloomberg, you know, I'm not sure that anybody should hold up Michael Bloomberg as, as an example of, you know, what to do right with a large business when you, when you come. I'm not it. suggesting he is. I'm just saying, A, <laughs> yeah. he's of a different political stripe. Right, right. He's also a billionaire. Right. And unless I'm uh, misunderstanding, I think that's plus or minus what we were told. Yeah. So, you know, the term blind trust doesn't actually mean anything. 
Like there's not like, like it doesn't, like you can call a lot of things blind trust. If you are Michael Bloomberg and you have a business that's called Bloomberg LP and you hang on to ownership of that business, that's neither blind to you nor is it blind to anybody else that you own that business. <laughs> Michael Bloomberg owns 88% of Bloomberg LP. That's not blind. Okay. And, and that business did spectacularly well while he was uh, mayor of New York City, not necessarily because of, you know, policies that he was making, but because it was a well positioned business that did have good management. In a similar way, you know, when Trump says, Oh, I put my business in a trust, uh, you know, look, if your business is Trump National Doral and Trump National Bidminster and uh, Trump Tower, uh, it doesn't matter if you put the thing in a quote unquote trust. It's not blind to you nor to anybody else. If you want evidence for that, you can just look at your calendar of where you're making stops about, you know, twice a week at all of your own properties. This isn't, nobody's confused about what you own, including yourself. <laughs> so uh, neither of these are great examples of blind trust. The idea of a blind trust is that you take a business or a collection of assets and you trust them to somebody else and you say, you go make investment decisions about what to do with all of this. And in a true br blind trust, you're required to, the first thing that they do is they liquidate. And then they invest it in a variety of, of other assets. And sometimes, you know, this has bad consequences. You know, I think that John Hickenlooper, uh, I think he owned a brewery that he put into a blind trust. And uh, the manager was like, this is a bad investment and sold his brewery. And he was so mad when he came out of office because he was like, I wanted my brewery. What the heck? And he's like, where's hey, my man, fucking that's, beer? That's, that's <laughs> what a blind trust is. You know, I mean, we, you know, we sell the things and invest it for you. You don't get a choice. Um, so Trump made a lot of promises about what he was going to do to separate himself from his business. Uh, you know, the first was that he wasn't going to talk about the business with his kids who he was, you know, putting in charge as the managers of the, of the companies, even though he still owned them and still controlled the money. Uh, you know, he was delegating to them the day-to-day -day responsibilities. Um, you know, look, I was in Trump. And Tower. who's the number one, uh, Trump offspring, um, in the Trump organization? Who's the heir apparent that is sort of really running the show in his absence? Well, if you, if you had asked that question four years ago, everyone would have said Ivanka. Um, but with Ivanka in Washington and Don Jr. swept up in uh, right-wing right -wing politics, it's Eric Trump who is really taking the most active role in managing the money. Um, and so would he be the equivalent of maybe an acting CEO? Is oh, that yeah. how we should think of Eric Trump? Oh, yeah. I mean, his official title is executive vice president, and so is Don Jr.'s, which is kind of funny that they you know, say that their dad's not in charge, and yet they're not willing to promote themselves to be president or CEO. But whatever. You see that in some other family businesses too. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's the one who's, you know, who's running the show on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, I was in Eric's office shortly after Trump made the promise that he wasn't going to talk about business with his kids. And I asked Eric about it and I said, you know, what are your plans here? And, uh, you know, he told me flat out that he planned on updating his dad on the financials of the business. Th this was like a month or two after his dad said the exact opposite. So right there up front, you know, one of the core promises falls by the wayside. You know, then you have Trump promises that he's not going to do any new foreign deals. He does limit some of his foreign deals, as I mentioned earlier, but 
you know, he does do new foreign deals. He ends up selling land in the Dominican Republic while he's in office. That's a new foreign deal. I mean, it's the definition of a new foreign deal. Um, Based on your understanding of him, the businesses, um, Eric Trump, the other executives, family members, um, when a transaction like that happens, do you think the president was involved or do you think per your comment about selling, <laughs> selling the brewery, maybe Eric and the team just decided this was an asset for one reason or another that it was time to sell and they sold it. And, and because the, um, Donald Trump's the president, they didn't consult him. They just went ahead and did this transaction. Yeah. Well, it's hard to know for sure, but I'll, I'll tell you what we do know. So first of all, there are a lot of transactions that are constantly going on, both, you know, rental agreements and also sales of property. Uh, many of those transactions are fairly small. So, you know, Donald Trump in his first three years in office sold about $118 million worth of real estate um, through more than 100 different transactions. He's constantly selling condos. If you want to pay the president of the United States, go buy one of his condos. You can pay millions of dollars immediately. You can put it in a shell company. Nobody will know who you are. Uh, this is one of the many entry points into, you know, Trump's finances that, uh, you know, that ethics folks are concerned about. But so he's constantly selling off a lot of stuff. And my guess, and I don't know, but my guess is that they're not checking in with Trump. Hey, do you care if we sell unit 2408 in Trump International Hotel Las Vegas for $365,000? You know, I don't, I don't think that they probably bother him with that. Um, Trump was quoted in the New York Post talking about how they were interested in putting the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. up for sale. And in that quote, the language that he use, uses suggests that he was involved in that decision. Uh, you know, he talks about how, you know, we were planning on selling it, but then coronavirus hit, and then we decided to take it off of the market. Um, and that's a large property. And given his own words about it, uh, I would be stunned <laughs> if Donald Trump did not give the okay to sell that property. Uh, so I think it's probably, it probably depends on, you know, which property. Um, but at a certain level, it's all, uh, you know, a little bit of conjecture because we don't have, you know, uh, voice recordings of Trump talking to Eric, uh, you know, about these finances. And even though Eric told me he was going to update him on the finances, you know, we don't have those tapes. So we don't know exactly, you know, how those conversations have gone. So, of course, there are many people who say this leads to untold amounts of uh, conflicts of interest. But but before we get there in, in sort of defense of President Trump, you know, the American people uh, elected a, a business person, entrepreneur, CEO, billionaire uh, as president, just mm -hmm. like they did with Bloomberg in New York. And and one could take a position that says, hey, listen. When you elect a billionaire to a major public office, in this case, of course, uh, the leader of the country, you have to understand that with a $2.6 billion, $2.5 billion net worth and all these assets all around the world and so forth and so on, to ask an individual like that to liquidate all of those assets and put it in a quote-unquote real blind trust is too much of an ask. And so... We, the, the, the uh, electric, understood that we're voting this person in with these assets, with these what some people would call 
conflicts. And we're okay with that because this is the guy. All this we understood. Mm -hmm. And so who gives a shit if, uh, you know, Qatar is renting from him in San Francisco and foreign dignitaries are coming to the Trump Hotel in Washington and there are various activities at Mar-a-Lago and so forth and so on. All these things we've heard with various people buying things or giving or, or you know, transacting business with the Trump organization mm -hmm. in one way or another that are so that are supposedly a conflict of interest. One could take a position that says, well, we knew he owned, you know, these kinds of assets and we elected him president because we wanted a business guy, billionaire guy president. That's why we wanted him as president. We don't give a shit about the quote unquote uh, conflicts of interest. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of things. First is that um, in the executive branch of the government, uh, you know, you are not allowed to own potentially conflicting assets in any position except for if you're president or vice president. So, and there are a lot of rich people in those positions. Um, you know, Stephen Mnuchin, who I estimate is worth $400 million. He sold off everything that he owns. Wilbur Ross, who I estimate is worth $600 million, not the billions that he claimed, but still a lot of money, uh, got rid of all of his assets. Betsy DeVos, um, you know, who we estimate with her family, with her immediate family, is worth about $2 billion. Uh, you know, she divested everything that could conflict with, with her duties as education secretary. The trouble with being president is that there's really nothing that couldn't conflict with that role. You oversee everything. And um, so everyone else in the executive branch has to play by one set of rules, but the president does have, you know, a different set of rules. Now, previous presidents have all acted like those rules applied to them. Um, you know, so the Bushes put their stuff in a blind trust. Uh, Barack Obama. Was it a a real blind trust? <laughs> yeah, there's actually was a real blind trust. Um, Barack Obama. So the Bush family did do that with both uh, HW and W. Right, right. Um, Barack Obama, uh, you know, put his stuff in basically like large mutual funds that, and that's another way to get around these conflicts is you basically, the theory is that if you diversify into a mutual fund that's broad-based enough, then you're not going to be making decisions based on, you know, one particular company or something like that. But it still gives you exposure to the equity markets if that's something that you want. Um, there's an advantage to divesting. First of all, it doesn't it doesn't politicize your business, uh, which, as we've seen in Trump's case, can be a really negative thing for you. Um, but it also uh, there's a, a rule that if you divest to get rid of things to comply with the conflicts of interest statute then you don't have to pay capital gains taxes on those sales, which is a huge advantage for a business person who's looking to diversify their fortune uh, away from one asset and get into a more broad-based set of assets that you know models, for example, the S&P 500 or something like that. So uh, I want to make sure I understood what you said. Yeah. A business person getting into elected office, mm -hmm. certainly like the presidency, if he had sold his $2.5 billion in the assets that he held at the time, mm -hmm. put it into a quote unquote blind trust where money managers were moving it around various different asset classes, you know, private company, whatever they were doing. Right. But, but truly money managers, you know, like I have a money manager mm -hmm. and we talk four times a year. Right. 
And if something major he wants to do, he'll call me. But in general, other than those four times, and I'm not one of these guys, I, I don't want to watch CNBC. I don't give a shit about any of it. I want to live right. my life, right? And so he doesn't call me and say, well, we're going to sell some of this and buy some. In general, he's going off and doing what we talked about last time we talked, unless right. it's sort of outside the lines, right. right? But he could be buying and selling stock today. I could own things today that I didn't own yesterday, and I wouldn't know about right. it. That, that's what we're talking about, right. yes? Right, yeah. And so if you're to do that, if he had sold his $2.5 billion, mm-hmm. he would have gotten that those gains, whatever gains there were, they're tax-free because he was selling it for those political reasons? Yeah, it's tax-deferred. So you don't have to pay it's tax deferred. on it until you then sell those holdings, which is great. If you buy, yeah. you know, if you buy a, a, you know, ETF modeling the S&P 500, that the components of that ETF will change. You never have to sell and you don't have to pay any capital gains tax. For a guy who's in his early 70s, uh, you know, realistically, he probably wouldn't ever pay any capital gains tax on it then because he would, you know, be able to diversify his fortune and be able to pass away before he has to sell for those capital gains. It would be a great business move. So, Dan, you really think that if the president of the United States had divested 100% of all the assets that you've been talking about, done this thing that the Bushes did and the Obamas did and so forth, from a business point of view, he'd actually be in a really good place. Oh, there's no question. I mean, it's it's a, it's a math equation, you know? Well, there it is. Part one of my stunning conversation with journalist and author Dan Alexander. And part two will be coming up next. So if by chance you're not subscribed to this podcast, why not hit subscribe now and you'll get part two as soon as it comes out. Now, in challenging times, it's critical to have real up to the minute facts about your business. You see, visibility and control matter, and they matter today more like they've ne- more than they've ever mattered before. And that's where my friends at NetSuite by Oracle come in. NetSuite is the number one cloud ERP system. It's the one unified business management suite that encompasses ERP and financials, CRM and e-commerce, and much more for over 20,000 organizations around the world. With NetSuite, you'll get a full picture of your business. Now, go to netsuite.com. Uh, slash different right now and you'll be able to set up your free product tour and receive your free guide the seven strategies to grow your profits that's netsuite.com slash different and my friends at Splunk are the global leaders in data to everything they help you bring data to every question every decision and every action and never before has data mattered like it matters now and with Splunk Many organizations use Splunk to modernize and strengthen their data defenses. Splunk is used by some of the world's most sophisticated organizations to monitor, detect, respond, and resolve digital security threats. Visit Splunk.com today slash D2E. That's Splunk.com slash D2E. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Dan Alexander. Wow. What a conversation. And don't forget, part two is coming up uh, very soon here. His new book is out. It's called White House Inc. I also want to thank Amanda Lang for helping to make these two special episodes happen. I want to point you to my good friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org. This is the nonprofit helping people dream, plan, and live their best lives. And man, do we need help doing that. And One Life has been conducting programs for uh, people of color for almost a decade now. Check out OneLifeFullyLive.org. And don't be shy to crack open your wallet. Also want to shout out to my friends at Squadcast.fm. They are the podcast platform for professionals and the podcast 
podcast platform we use. Check out squadcast.fm. Now, are you in Australia? Do you want to do some legendary marketing? My friends at Rapid Media are there for you. Check out rapidmedia.com.au. And my friends in uh, the UK uh, who do legendary marketing are called Positive Marketing. Check out positivemarketing.com. And speaking of marketing, why not check out the number one marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. My friends at Atranet have been building B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. They're going to help you conquer your category. Check out atre.net. Also want to say a deep, heartfelt thank you to all of our hospitals, churches, local charities, and nonprofits, our local businesses who are trying to make a difference out there. And if you can support them, by all means, crack your wallet open for that. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is only for people who value real, different conversations. And it's the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And we would love it if you shared the shit out of it. I believe every voting American... Uh, needs to dig into Dan's work in this podcast. All, epi- all, all episodes, all episodes are uh, conducted with cocktails, or most of them anyway. We're produced <laughs> by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution and build lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to vote. Spread podcasts, not viruses. Transparency matters. A deep thank you to our healthcare heroes, our retail supply chain heroes. And thank you to all of our small e-entrepreneurs. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. Uh, and hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to uh, Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carson. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you. Please stay safe, stay legendary. And until we're together again, Follow your different.